Someone asked me recently, what is the coolest part of my job as CEO at Clear Motor Market? I said, well, that's easy. The fact that every day I get to dig into our clients' businesses to learn not only what makes it tick, but what we can do as their partner to deliver the marketing that truly matters to their business. It's like being in a living, breathing case study every day. And for that, I am truly blessed. Hello, Collisions YYC listeners. It's with an overwhelming sense of pride that I wanted to share with you that the marketing agency that I had the pleasure of co-founding and leading is turning 15 years old. Yes, Clear Motive Marketing is 15. I wanted to shout out a huge thank you to all of our clients, past and present, as well as our vendors and all of the incredible team members we've worked with over the years to make this milestone possible. Check us out at clearmotive.ca to learn more about what we can do that matters to you. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to my guest today, Mr. Mark Blackwell. How are you doing, Mark? Good. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me. Oh, man, it's a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Calgary Conspires, you and I have crossed paths uh, many times. And finally, I got you wrangled in. You're a busy man to come on the show. So I think what, what, what triggered me to reach out was maybe you were, you were actually the investor of the year um uh the 2023 tech award so that's what got you again i was like hey that guy i need to talk to that guy <laughs> so thanks for thanks for responding i'm sure the myriad of media requests you were getting and the flurry of activity that followed that award <laughs> i mean it's a bit of a joke because um you know there's maybe <laughs> seven or eight of us venture capitalists in the province and i was just I bound know. to get the award after year six of the ceremony but <laughs> i appreciate the kudos it's a small small dedicated group of us in alberta <sighs> Which is part of what I love having these conversations because the people that you get to talk to are the people that are actually doing the thing and doing the live. So I appreciate that. So, hey, let's start off right from the top. I never want to make any assumptions with my audience. General partner at Builders VC. Let's start there and let's launch off into all the things you do. But what it, what is a Builders VC? What do you guys do? What's your role? And uh, let's rock and roll from there. Totally. Yeah. So uh, general partner, I've been with a firm um, since just after our inception in 2018. So we're a traditional venture capital fund. um, And we launched the firm under the guise and thesis of the modernization of antiquated industries. And so while most uh, people might think of venture capital looking after the next social network or fintech solution, we kind of look at the unsexy unrepresented sectors of technology that are going through mass amounts of disruption. And so in practicality, what that means is we're looking at the intersection of technology and IT and healthcare, agriculture, food, industrials, and real estate and construction. And those are the four sectors that we plan. It's almost easier to say what we don't do. We're not a direct-to-consumer CPG retail. We're not doing, you know, um, direct-to-consumer Facebook type of social network opportunities, or we're not doing you know, crypto web three opportunities. It's really antiquated sectors that have legacy issues of technology and bringing technology to them. Big, large, established, everybody knows who they are. Everyone knows what they do. And digital transformation is the, is the buzzword of, of, of the, I don't know, the decade, maybe. I don't, yes. know. I don't know when that's going to start or certainly when it's going to stop. Out of those industries, just that, you know, I can't, can't resist diving down a little bit. Is there any that you're really excited about? Like with what you're seeing and kind of having a ringside seat with some of the, the changes that are happening and all of those can be exciting in their own way, depending on which rabbit hole you want to go down. What's blowing your hair back these days in, in those different sectors? Wow. That's a, that's a big open-ended question in all of, in all the areas. So we, we have two partners in the U S that focus on our healthcare practice. Um, primarily in that space, everything from, you know, mental health. Uh, I would say the biggest thing I'm sure we'll chat about today is with regards to everything the chat GPT revolution and, and generative AI and how it's affecting all of our sectors, but specifically related to our healthcare practice, the team's spending an increasing amount of time looking at RNA drug discovery powered by artificial intelligence. So how can we find um, 
diagnose better solutions on the on the medicine side. But the areas that I spend all of my time thinking about uh, these days is you know agriculture and food supply chain um, construction. You know, it's a trillion dollar industry that's by far the most inefficient sector, and so we're spending time tackling a number of different vectors related to the construction area, whether it's you know the huge transition of blue collar labor, um, trying to figure out unique ways to build marketplaces to engage, train, enable a new workforce of workers, or on conversely, looking at automation. And so we've invested in, in you know, a company called SafeAI that's building autonomous retrofit kits for large-scale mining and construction trucks that are basically taking the human out of the cab. You know, in some of the remotest areas that large infrastructure or mining projects are happening, the biggest challenge you have is attracting labor. It's you know, $250,000 per truck driver per year in, in Southern Australia. And so solutions like this are automating those processes to eliminate humans entirely, both from a safety and cost perspective. And so that's a huge area in the construction sector. We spent a ton of time looking at called hacking labor, um, both, you know, training marketplaces, bringing new entrants into the workforce. Uh, and then on the other side, looking at kind of full automation. And obviously, just by listening to you talk, you guys have a global kind of preview of what you look after or what you look what you look into for opportunity wise. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, like the the team is is based in North America. The primary mandate of where we invest is North America, but by nature of where our companies operate, particularly like a company like Safe AI, um, they're operating on five different continents now. Just given the nature of where large scale mining infrastructure projects are happening. Um, we have a couple of companies based in Europe, but our primary presence is Canada and the U.S. Okay. In those markets, you know, you mentioned healthcare in the U.S. Like, I'm always curious of like who's in and where in the race. And I say race just for the sake of sake of the, the statement, but that willingness to try new things, the willingness to invest, the access to capital, you know, is it is it going to be based on industry or just I'm curious your perspective. I know you've done lots of work south of the border. Just getting a read on your view on those two markets, just north and south for, for lack of less, par- less setting less parameters to the question. I mean, I think that like, you know, to no surprise, the pandemic was a massive accelerant. I think, you know, the CEO of Microsoft said there was two years of digital transformation, a period of two months. And I would say the area that that saw the biggest stress on the system was the healthcare sector in Canada and the U.S. And so, you know, we have a company called Carbon Health, um, which started as a original digital transformation tool for telemedicine. They vertically integrated. We brought in Brookfield Asset Management. They started acquiring, you know, unprofitable clinics in the U.S. And at the peak of the pandemic, I think they were doing like 10 or 15 percent of all COVID tests in the state of California. They set up these pop-up clinics. And then they went and basically decided to go buy underperforming clinics in the U.S. and build this full digital experience end to end consumer. And that was the accelerated by COVID. I think in many respects, there was a, a micro, I would say a, a, a huge lens placed on the fragility of that sector, given how much pressure that was under that post pandemic, there was a huge boom in activity in that area. And then as well, just like the fragile nature of the food supply chain system, you looked at like the United States put in a number of effects, emergency supply act that like had to bring back certain portions of the U S economy because it was under so much stress with regards to, you know, domestication of food produce, um, relying on international sources. And so I would say the pandemic put a huge accelerant to all the sectors that we played in. Yeah. The deglobalization conversation, which is I'm reading, um, 
the end is just the beginning, Peter Zion, what happens with the collapse of globalization, just talking about some of those topics. So yeah, it's, that's a, it's an interesting rabbit hole that's quite deep when you start going down. And the pandemic signed a flashlight on so much of that. Just curious about healthcare. Did, some, did, did that instance, again, easier in the US because they have a different system than we have? Always thinking about the barriers or things that allow innovation and change to happen faster versus like, oh, that's not the way we do it. We're Canada and like, we'd be very protective of our healthcare. And I'm not criticizing because we have a great system. But I'm always trying to understand the differences, especially from a new and new and improved way of doing things perspective. I mean, they're like entirely systematic differences. I mean, we don't do a ton of healthcare investing here for a reason. We sit on a treasure trove of data and information, arguably some of the best in the world. But when it comes to um, access, I would say there's a whole transformation in Canada that I, I quite frankly can't comment on intelligently. I just see how the U.S. system is driven. You know, one of our full-time partners is a full-time healthcare professional practitioner in the US, you know, it's everything is done based on billing codes and solution providing to, to enter into the system. And so it's a very monetary style transaction to how things work itself through um, both supply, demand and technology adoption wise. And you have healthcare networks in the US that are far more progressive and have the ability to be nimble versus the centralized nature of how healthcare is done in the country here. Yeah, anyone I know who's attempted to innovate or change or any type of technology-based disruption, specifically just here in Alberta, has been met with a significant number of challenges. And there's a variety of reasons, but this is just not the way we do it. And the, the system tends to protect itself here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so you're based in Alberta. Talk to me about what you're seeing here. What's going on? You're just going down. I love going down your LinkedIn and you were involved in so many boards, so many different associations. You're definitely out and about. What are you seeing? What's been the last, you know, you made the joke about six years, they had to give it to you sooner or later kind of thing. Uh, but what have you seen in that period of time in terms of how the market is maturing here? Like goods and bats. Like I always want to talk about the optimistic side, but also the reality of where maybe we're still getting in our own way. And just where's the trend going in Alberta? Yeah, I think you got to take a bit of a, like a history book. I mean, when I started my first business back in 2015, I would say this city and province had a very nascent tech sector. Um, and fast forward to today, I think we've made huge transformations, huge strides. I don't think any of us would have believed that, you know, we'd have, you know, a proxy of five to six major anchor tenants in the city, all close to a billion dollars of value. I think there's been a number of organizations like, you know, whether it's Solium, Matabotic, Cement, Neo, there's enough critical mass in this city, which from one perspective, just shows signs of health of the tech sector in general. But I think the consequence as well is that we're starting to see the spinoffs. So, you know, the Exolium founders, the Exolium employees starting companies. And that that's really, to me, like once you get that flywheel effect of going on now, you know, layer into that, you know, the boom of 2021, where capital was infinite and free. And then two years or three years later, fast forward to today, where the paradigm has entirely shifted to the other direction. And so I think for many first time, even second time entrepreneurs that grew up in an era where valuations were at all time highs, the public markets were rewarding growth and not profitability, and capital was free, literally free, you could do whatever you wanted. And I think a lot of those entrepreneurs are now facing an entirely different paradigm shift. Some have been extremely reactive. Some have moved quickly. Some have made the right changes. But I think that we are maybe through the second inning, in my view, of 
of the hurt okay. that is yet to come. And that's not, mm-hmm. that's not unique to Calgary as it is to yeah, yeah. every other jurisdiction in this country. Um, I think our set of entrepreneurs have been far more resilient and reactive than we've seen in the U S. Um, but on mean, the whole, um, yeah, un, 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 that sounds like a positive layered inside. I, I got to peel that back a little bit. So resilient, reactive compared to other markets of just accepting it and dealing with it, pulling the ax out quicker, pulling the new strategy out quicker versus like, Oh, this will pass. We've seen this before. We'll get through it. Like uh, I love the just resilience as a, what does it actually mean in this context? I just think we have a special breed of entrepreneurs here. Like, you know, you take Hanif or the team at Neo Financial. They've been there. They've done that. They've seen this cycle because they built businesses um, that have been through this in other sectors or other times. And so it's not new to them. Um, I think that they have all moved relatively quickly. They've all, you know, taken a little bit on the chin with regards to valuation. But I think seeing yourself through a cycle um, all of them have been through that and know that once they get through it, they're going to be far better for it. And I think there's some entrepreneurs out there that are still in a bit of disbelief. You know, you see some early wins potentially this quarter of seeing like Arm and Instacart going public and entrepreneurs are like, well, everything's back to normal. Like the public markets are open again and therefore we can get back to doing business the way we did it. I don't think that business will ever go back to the way that we used to do it. Now, there are outliers to that that equation if you're in a generative ai or a climate company you're still not necessarily governed by the rules of others um but on the whole (laughs) i think that um there is a new world order and some entrepreneurs have just been far quicker to adapt Mm, that's interesting and when you say like essentially growth versus profitability as the way it was versus earning your next round growing but not actually having a quote-unquote sustainable business model versus being through it before knowing you have a solid business model knowing that this is just the business cycle you're in and adapting to play the game but still knowing you've got something sound kind of under the hood right Mm -hmm. how's that impacted the investors like you know i'm sitting back 20 20 21 22 even early 22 talking to people on the show like it almost felt like this oh yeah we got to get in we got to invest this is going to be great i'm like oh man there's gonna be some people that don't have a good experience here which then really leaves if you're early in that game, because I would it say that it goes the same for investors if your experience versus new and you knew you could lose it, but you still really didn't expect it to happen. How's that impacted the flow of kind of capital from that side of it? Specifically in Calgary, being we've got some newness to our cycles. I mean, I think that like you got to look at it in the, like from a stage specific perspective. So I think it always starts at the top of the food chain from companies that are like late stage pre IPO or IPO, and it takes cycles for it to kind of trend down to the pre-seed and seed level where I think we still have a good concentration of capital here. So not to say that the pre-seed, seed, early A's have not been affected. I think they have, but I think they've been far less affected than the late stage cohort of businesses and the companies that were. And and that the infancy, given the infancy of where we are in Calgary, I think we've been less affected than other jurisdictions, just given the nature of call it unicorn style businesses that we've had. Now, I think ultimately what that does is it allows those investors to kind of recalibrate. And also, I just think that I've never, and as I'm many in the city, seen valuations as low as they have been and probably corrected where they needed to be. And so I think that that okay. starts from a healthy perspective for funds that are in their first year or two of cycle. Now, you still have to see this thing through, but like I haven't seen a seed deal 
done for less than a $10 million Val cap in like two years. And now that's happening left, right, and center. And so I think everything's just reverting back to the norm. I think what to, if you go to the very, very top of the food chain of allocators to the asset class um, that potentially were over indexed to venture, I think that many of them are deciding to pull back and they're deciding to pull oh, back okay. yeah. for a number of different reasons, primarily because there's just not liquidity. And so, you know, typically there's just like cycles and flow of capital that's getting sent back to investors. And so I think LPs, limited partners of our funds, pension funds, endowments, family offices that saw the sector as, you know, this high growth opportunity are now riding the cycle through the J curve of potentially not having distributions or having a look through when distributions come back. And so they're going to under allocate the sector for the coming year. So I, I think that's all natural. There'll be a slower pace of capital Mm -hmm. into venture. It will probably weed out some of those like first time uh, funds or solo GPs that got into this business and the hype of things and will revert itself back to where it needed to be. Interesting. Stick to your knitting a little bit of a, for, for a few years. Yes. I love what you said about the correction going like to where they should be. That's different than saying, oh, it's an overcorrection. Now we've gone like we, we are notoriously like too far one way, too far the other. That's not what I heard you say. I heard you say more so that the evaluations are maybe where they quote unquote should, should be. And I know that's subjective, but that doesn't sound like an overcorrection as much as it was just a writing of the ship. Yes, 100%. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, that doesn't sound bad unless you were never through that before and it feels like you could do no wrong. Now you can do no right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you're saying this is what separates the, 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 the whatever from the whatevers. <laughs> it does. And like, you can go back in history. Um, when we've looked at all, all the prequent data, they collect like all the historical performance data of, of venture and private equity asset managers. And you know, just like vintages of wine, you know, Napa Valley, it's like, which vintage was the best? Well, actually, you know, the vintage post the 2000 crash, the vintage post the 2018 crash. And my view is the vintage of 2024 will arguably be the best vintages of venture funds in history um, because there was a serious correction. Valuations got, got back in check. And so I think that my view, and we're going, we're raising a fund right now that our 2024 vintage vehicle will be probably our best performing in history because things have come back down to normality and it's not crazy out there. And so we can ride the cycle, the nature of these, these funds like ours is they're 10 years in life, but it's the only thing we have to do as a fund manager is get two, two things, right. The entry point of the valuation. And when we exit everything in between, we do a lot of work. There's a lot of in the sausage making process, but if you get those two things wrong, like this business doesn't work. And so I think we're going to see, those funds that can raise those funds that have dry powder will probably be the best that we've seen in a very long time. Just based on the opportunities that are existing in the cycle. Are you seeing funds? Is this an opportunity also where it separates to your point around who's in it? Cause they saw an opportunity versus who's in it to actually help them make the sausage. So, you know, is there some rolling up the sleeves happening and leaning in with some of your founders and some of your portfolio companies to go, Hey, we know this is a good business. And here's what's happening. Let's lean in. Like always curious about how much time you spend or you spend as an organization from a fun perspective, leaning in with your founders, with your companies 
to help them through some of this transition? Because I know some funds take a very hands-off approach. Some are like, no, no, our value proposition is, you know, quote unquote, we're different. We're going to get in and help. Where do you see that? Like what approach do you take and how do you see that balance kind of shaking out when things are not as rosy as they are right now? We're very active. Um, we're very, very active. And we have a whole group of operating partners. It's called our B- B2 team of, you know, full-time data scientists. We have a full-time website. executive yeah, coach, we have a full-time PR team. We kind of like, we'll parachute these people into our companies, but tactically, like mm-hmm. there's not a day that goes by that we don't have active communications with our team given because a lot of our companies have either reforecasted or having to go back to the market. Um, there's a new world order that exists. And I think, you know, what I, what I mean when I said before of like, I don't think we've really seen the true hurt because yeah. what's ha- been happening this past 12 to 18 months is that investors have been, you know, plugging holes in their portfolio, like bridge round, safe round, inside round, doing everything they can so that their companies don't have to go and reprice equity, which is fine. I think that all of us have been there to support our businesses, hoping that we can kind of turn the corner and recorrect some of the core underlying metrics before they're forced to go back to raise another price round of equity. And so that's why, you know, I see what you're, I see what you're insolvency saying. and bankruptcy rates are at an all-time high, down rounds are at an all-time high. But like, I don't think the full trough of companies have gone all the way through yet to have to go back to market to raise. Because we've been exercising some strategies in our playbook, but soon that's going to run its course and we'll just, it'll catch up with itself is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, exactly. Talk to me about the reality of a down round good, bad. It's not awesome. But you know, you and I had some over coffee and you said, ah, you know, it's not always bad and it's how you approach it and what it means and how it represents. And it's so down, boom, by, by the DNA, it sounds negative. But give me a little bit of a, maybe uh, like anything, there's probably many ways to approach that from a different perspective. I mean, I think that, um, I'm always empathetic to the entrepreneur that's sitting across the table because Sometimes it's absolutely confusing why you're getting a down round. You know, some of our businesses have 2x revenue, they've increased profitability. Um, Some of those things are just outside of control because there's been such a compression of multiples. And so I'm sitting, I can sit in my shoes and look at my, some entrepreneurs and just like them being baffled, like why valuations are down, why they're getting term sheets, the valuations they have, despite the fact that their businesses have done well. Um, and possibly but, better than they were doing when they raised the round in the first place, they which were. is a bit of a mind, bit of a mind fuck. <laughs> so there's like a reconciliation. That's why I mean, like I'm sympathetic when I say like, you know, some of the haven't been able to swallow the pill. Well, it's hard to swallow the pill because like you're confused, like everything you've done to control your business from a cost and revenue perspective has gone well, but maybe there's just mass and there has been massive multiple compression that is valuing companies at less than they are. So I, I'm sympathetic to entrepreneurs having to go through that experience. I think that the good entrepreneurs just see the light through the end of the tunnel that like, this is just one a step in the journey that like taking it down round, rationalizing costs, um, having cash on the balance sheet, being able to think about like cash flow break even are things that will make them stronger in three or four years time. And so while it's tough to reconcile this like short term blip in a company's journey, you know, these are like seven, 10 year journeys for most entrepreneurs. And so like uh, the tactical pieces of it all are like, yes, we're repricing equity. There's a down round. In a lot of cases, we, we are most critically interested in making sure that management just has an incentive to continue to build the business. Because most times, based on how these rounds are structured with anti-dilution rights for preferred shareholders, 
who takes a hit on the chin the most? It's the common shareholders. And who are the biggest common shareholders? It's the management teams. So we are just making sure when we do these types of structuring that management has skin in the game, that we either create a significantly increased employee share option pool. We do one-time founder refreshes because they're running the company. And so, you know, founders have been diluted to shit. They just want to make sure that they have enough. You're going to lose your fire a little bit, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a critical piece that we just make sure we get involved, actively involved in. Which I appreciate that because you're right. If the people that are at the helm every day lose the fire to be there or lose the connection to the long game, you're kind of sunk. Before. Yeah. And now you're having to put in a new team and that's a whole other set of problems. Exactly. Talk to me a little bit about even the retooling or the refocus from growth at all costs to actually some performance metrics. Like some of the things you're throwing out, sound operating principles of cash on the balance sheet and you've got some minimum run rates. You've, you're actually making some money versus like, man, we just got to grow these certain metrics so we can raise our next round. That feels like it's been flipped on that, but those are, they're different skill sets. And, you know, as a outside influence on some of these companies, I can only imagine those are a lot of the conversations you've been having in the last six, eight months. <laughs> and we were the biggest part of the problem because we were rewarding those <laughs> different types of things, like the competition <laughs> for capital, the, the skyrocketed valuations, were the biggest problem because of us. And so like, that's the root cause analysis of all this. We were is rewarding the dealer taking responsibility for the addiction. A hundred percent. It is. Um, <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's like, there's a correction and we're being like, show me when you get to cash or break even. And this is like two months after we had the conversation with them about the skyrocket high valuation. I think that like, um, we are having to execute a new set of playbooks within our companies under the assumption that there's not another round of financing. Um, and that's a really, really difficult, um, thing to reconcile, but it, it really is requiring our CEOs to dig deep in understanding if this is the last round, uh, what does that look like and how do we survive and what are the trade-offs in our business that we have to make to ensure that we have longevity. And sometimes in a world with infinite free cheap capital, there's no limits because like you can explore 17 different business options and you can enter new geographies and the cost of acquisition can be negative because you're growing. And I think that this is creating a new breed of entrepreneurs that are being highly selective, um, being highly focused and being in control of their destiny. Ultimately like that, that is the, that is the future. Um, I think that the piece that, we need to reconcile like we are raising money for this late stage insurance business. And the banker told us like, you still need to grow like a tech company, but you also need to underwrite like a traditional insurance business. And those two things are have to collide. Um, And so you still need to think about growth, but it's just not at all costs. Like you mentioned. Are you, when you, when you get back to the growth side, it requires new customers. It requires growing a portfolio of business. How's that side of the market from what you're seeing? Obviously, I feel we're in a little bit of a pocket here in Western Canada where things are innately positive. I'm hearing different rumblings from different contexts of mine, depending on even even in Canada, even Ontario versus BC. Are you still seeing lots of opportunity? Because the, the investment landscape has changed, valuations have changed, but the ability to now grow my business in a, in a market where there's customers and those customers are, have willingness to take on a new product. What are you seeing on that side in support of this new kind of dialogue around performance versus growth in terms of the actual business climate itself that your companies are operating in? I think that's like very, very specific to the sector that our companies are playing okay. in. Um, and so, you know, you look at macro tailwinds in mining minerals and climate, hmm. 
um, yeah. there's huge tailwinds associated with that. You know, the, the global demand for lithium and precious metals are at an all-time high, yet the sector is dealing with immense amount of ESG and climate-related issues. And so they're in hunt for solutions and the willingness to pay has never been at another high. Conversely, you look at what's happening in the commercial real estate sector, like what happened with WeWork a number of weeks ago, what's happening in the United States. And so companies that are looking to tackle cost efficiency, uh, revenue line items in commercial real estate are really struggling these days because of just the macro overlay. Um, and so it is hyper dependent for this, which is why uh, we have a diversified portfolio. You know, we're not a, I think those like sector specific prop tech funds or sector specific health funds, you know, have to ride that cycle where we have this unique ability to kind of titrate up and down. And so right now we're over indexing to agriculture. We over index to health in our first fund. And so we have this unique ability to kind of go up and down depending on where we see certain trends. I really appreciate that. And it's such a, you know, what, what, what's happening in the economy? Well, what, what sector are you talking about? Like, it seems it's so easy to broad brush. Oh, economy is good or economy is bad, but it is on a sector per sector basis. I really appreciate, I appreciate that from that perspective and geographically what's going on. You know, yeah. Minerals and climate. Yeah. Cause you mentioned and, and food and ag and, and where that's headed. Curious, that's an area of, cause I, I grew up on a farm. You and I have had conversations about the farm before. Um, what's getting you excited in the, in the ag space? Is it like the automation? Is it like, genetics at a, at a seed and plant level what think, geek out a little bit on that what are you seeing in that sector that's getting you excited uh so i'd say similar so three three themes i mean the, and we we invest kind of from animal all the way to the crop side of agriculture and everything kind of in between of that the things that we probably haven't touched is any of the alt based protein pieces that have a direct to consumer lens to it because we just we're not good pickers of of certain items as it relates to that. So we're more picks and shovels investors, um, okay. looking at real operational efficiency in nascent areas. And I'd say one of the one of the areas we spend a bunch of time in is in animal health um, and precision animal. And so we have a number of companies that are trying to automate um, certain components of the animal supply chain, all the way from the feedlot to the processing side that are just things that have been continually done on pen and paper, um, whether it's animal feed rations to animal operations, all these things are just ripe for disruption. And so we recently announced a spin out of a company called Performance Livestock Analytics from Zoetis. We actually sold the business in fund one to them um, and we recently bought it back. And so they have 16 to 20% market share of all the feedlots in the United States and are automating the entire end-to-end process of book, bookkeeping, accounting, day-to-day management of the feedlot. And this is a very nascent niche sector that you could think that maybe that doesn't have a venture-grade opportunity. But now that we have these style of platform companies, you can think about all the areas that touch any animal operation in the United States. And that's you know the commerce that's and trade of right. feed. Yeah. It's the commerce and trade of animals. It's the financing and risk management of those animals. And so we started a company called StockGuard, which is launching a proprietary insurance product on the livestock side. We have a company called Bank Barn, which is launching a, a product for dairy lending. These are just antiquated areas of the sector that haven't been touched for decades. So traditional ways to lend to a dairy operation have not changed, but there's mass and mass amount of data out there that exists to underwrite and create better underwriting models. So that's an area that's getting us excited. 
um, for sure. And then just like another big area we're spending time in is like the dealer network side. There's been so much automation that's been happening in consumer auto. You go to a Toyota mm-hmm. website, there's a chatbot that's automated into an inventory management system. That inventory, inventory management system has a really good job potentially using generative AI to make their salespeople better out in the field. None of that has transitioned to construction and ag. And so we have another company called Tractor Zoom, which is doing some of this work around like real-time pricing aggregation and developing vertical applications for dealer networks in the US and are super excited by that. Um, there's just right, right for disruption. I love when you call it, you a parallel, like the auto industry and go, well, look what they're doing here. And it's working. The customers are getting comfortable. And then that same customer goes to buy a tractor and doesn't have the same experience. <laughs> Not at all. It's embarrassing, actually. <laughs> and then as a consumer, I'm like, I just want it to work the way I want it to work. And it worked well over here. I don't care that you're not in that sector. I still expect the same type of experience. Exactly. You, you touched on the beginning, AI, broad sweeping term. What are you seeing? Is it, are we, is, what are we, one year anniversary of ChatGPT? I think we're hitting right now. I think mm-hmm. it came out like uh, where it wasn't a household name and now literally everybody talks about it. Is it still, you look at a pitch deck, it's got AI in it, even if it's not, I've, I've read about that recently, like the number of companies that were saying they were using AI as a fundraising tactic, but really when you dug in, it was nothing to do with AI versus the reality of some of the things you mentioned that are actually having true impact and are investor grade, as you said. What's what's the balance? What's your, what's your crystal ball around AI? I mean, I think your point is spot on that like, the, we're not talking about... Um, a decade. I mean, there, don't get me wrong. There's been foundation that's been required to get GPT and OpenAI to where it is today. Arguably, yes, it was created a year ago. And the important point to make there is that there's been so much vast change in a single year that typically takes a sector like a decade. And so like every week, if not every day, there's a new iteration. There, It is a true arms race. And so I think that you're seeing the... Hmm horizontal chat gpt competitors microsoft amazon all the big fangs developing their own solutions that are far more generic what we're obviously interested in is like the vertical applications of how they affect our sectors and there's two two sides to that one is like we just want to make sure that our companies have the effective toolkits to be far more efficient whether it's like taking a 2x and becoming a 10x developer there is just like a plethora of information being developed right now and almost an overconsumption of information So a lot of our CTOs and CEOs are just getting inundated with information around like, what's the best tool these days to use for sales automation? What's the best tools for our development teams to do? And so we have a full-time data scientist in-house, his name's Praveen, who's spending time with our companies to make sure they have the proper toolkits to just become far more efficient. acting as a guide, yeah. And and that is like a huge piece that you no longer need five full-time salespeople. Maybe you can automate those pieces. There's an efficiency play that is absolutely required. And then there's like the disruptive nature to the things that we're looking at in the sectors we're playing in. And so that's an area, particularly like vertical SaaS that you've heard about. Now it's like, you know, vertical AI and how those models are being applied to certain sectors. And we're spending a bunch of time in construction. We're spending a bunch of time in healthcare and agriculture, looking at applications, how they can do that. Now the signal and noise is real. Like, you, know, you can attach an AI to the back of your name, but what is really at the core of it? What is the data set that is driving the models and the proprietary nature and moats that they have over horizontal platforms? And that is the biggest challenge. Um, yeah. yeah. I really appreciate separating to like what can just make you more efficient, even in our industry, advertising and marketing at the level, the size that we're at. 
the most, the best I can hope for is that our team is now going, oh, let's explore what Adobe's doing with their new Firefly. Let's explore where we can optimize. Are we going to build our own proprietary AI solution for our clients? Not like, this is not a feasible conversation, but how are we using it to, you know, one or two X, even what our normal team is doing right now. And for so many companies, that's a conversation that you get. I appreciate you're providing the guide to like, what is actually the tool that's going to give me the best versus what can we build, which is a whole other conversation with some big numbers and big scale attached to it. Right. Because in reality, I don't have the numbers sitting in front of me, but like the compute costs, you see these companies like, you know, seed stage coming out of Silicon Valley raises $150 million round. Well, you look at use of proceeds when you actually double click on it, the compute power alone required to power some of these solutions and models is astronomically high. And so that's why we're seeing- I don't find that conversation is getting talked about as much. Like what you just brought up there, that just gets skimmed over. It seems to be anyway. It's insane. Like that's why NVIDIA is a trillion dollar company because they control a bunch of the compute that does this. And so that's not to be nuanced. Like why companies are having to raise gobs and gobs of cash is because they actually need that cash to- compute the engine to build the model the yeah, to so that that's just that's why things have gone bonkers and that's separate from the data conversation you said like you've got that but you've also how do you have the horsepower to even deal with it right exactly you happen to have this proprietary data set that no one else has right and if no one else has it how valuable is it and where did you get it but anyway that's a bigger it's a much bigger conversation exactly <laughs> let's pick us we'll camp out on the last point Calgary, obviously you're involved, you're involved from OSIF to a, a you know, you have, uh, you have Seaboard. I saw, um, missions, right. Uh, ERA. What are you seeing? You're involved in so many things. You sit on, they sit at so many tables. Can you high level it for us? What are you seeing? Where are we headed? The trends you, you talked about the churn. You talked about, we've got these unicorns that are now spinning off, which a few years ago when I started the show, people would say, once that starts to happen, you know, we're going to good pass. So we kind of touched on that. What about just broader kind of macro, but micro in the sense we're talking about Alberta, everything from government all the way down to the street. What's uh, any, any common themes you're catching in all the conversations you get to have? That's a good question. Um, you know, between like the university, uh, the ERA, my time at OSIF, even junior achievement at the, at the base level of, nice. you know, the change in what's happening with, with young entrepreneurs. Um, I think there's still this like optimism and you need layer and everything else that's going on. It's like, uh, you know, it's critical mass of activity. You've got CDL incubators, accelerators, like we've almost put everyone in a cauldron pot. Um, and there's so much great activity. Um, I think that the, 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 the issue is going to be, you know, this continued collaboration. I've always said this forever. Like the city in this province is so based on silos. It's organizations competing with one another. But we have to remember that like, this province from a population standpoint dwarfs a state or a city in the United States. And so there's, there's no longer, and I think these barriers are being broken down um, tactically. There's no longer this like us versus them type of scenario, Edmonton versus Calgary, Calgary versus Toronto. We're too no, small of a country we're, we're to, too small to, do it. to play that game. We're too, we're too, but those egos and agendas still exist. And those barriers are getting broken down, but the ERA is a great example. Like I think that there's a huge, massive opportunity the era to have you know in partnership with other provinces and the federal government to have this one plus one equals three strategy we just want to make sure we we invest and we retain our best companies in this country and obviously we're sitting on a treasure trove of assets that have this very unique opportunity for transformation as it relates to carbon and climate the era is one piece of the puzzle a very very important piece of the puzzle to make sure that there's funding there but you 
look at what they're doing in the United States and it's being absolutely dwarfed by the IRA. And so they, they have set the world stage in the United States to continue to fund climate. Um, and we need to make sure that we're doing that and putting us on the national stage by just making sure we have tentacles across this country. And it be, has become so divisive us versus them that we can no it's longer have that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, it's very much a province by province strategy right now, and we're kind of losing that. I've just been having people on chatting about that, and they're like, "Well, yeah, we it's hard to get aligned with what's happening even in the U.S. We can't even get aligned with what's happening with our neighbors." Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Are is there hope? Of course, I love hope. It's my favorite. It's one of my favorite things to trade with. Um, is there hope? Like, is it hope, or are we actually doing things to bring that down? Because the last few conversations I've had with a few people, they're like, "Ah, it's kind of annoying," and it doesn't. It doesn't seem like we're getting out of our own way in that specific context anytime soon. That's a good question. Um, I would say there's like two steps forward, one step back. I think that there are organizations yeah. out there. Yeah, we're like still, that, we're still plus one on that, so I'll take it. <laughs> right, it's like the Canadian Council of Innovators. They they have a good group of entrepreneurs across this country who are collectively thinking about the right policy initiatives and advocating. And there was a huge win last week. And if you followed that with the Pega, you know the province mm-hmm. made a big stick I in did. the ground. That I was thought, I thought that was a huge move because I've heard from other people sometimes off air. It's the associations that actually won't get out of the way for change. But I've heard that more, but on the side sidebars. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was the only Twitter argument I've ever gotten in my entire life um, talking about <laughs> this because I just think we're set in the dark ages. I understand both sides. I'm sympathetic yeah. to how both sides of the equation are doing it. But it's like, just get out of the way. You know, it's like there's software engineer is a word that's unanimously used across this entire world. So you're just creating noise that is not needed so that people can just get back to work. Um, So I'm glad that the government has stepped in actively to put a stop to it. It's just silly. It's silly. I like (laughs) this is a waste of energy. People we're not, we're just creating noise where we can actually cut through and move forward. And as a uh, forward moving individual that you are, that kind of stuff gets so annoying, doesn't it? Just good old fashioned. That frustrates me. Yeah. Like what else do people have better time to do on their hands? I get they're trying to defend both sides and hold the integrity of the word engineer, but like come to the table, uh, became so divisive. Um, and it yes. made and national the, news. The, the, it was the, world's, the world be, the world's changing, right? How embarrassing to have it on the, you know, the, a full page article in the globe and mail talking about how we're arguing around the use of the word software engineer in Toronto. Like who cares? Uh, like let's just get back to like, work. What do you mean? It, it is what it is. Right. right. Yeah, so yeah, small issue. <laughs> uh, last question just because i'm curious like calgary seems to be rocking right now we don't have enough houses for the people that we have we've got net new migration coming in bringing in new people with new talents and new skills kind of thoughts overall about you know you know calgary but alberta right now from your view i've heard we're on a four or five year run it's going to be pretty positive energy is going to stay stable what's your crystal ball look like on that and if anyone's listening they've got to the end so we can do the crystal ball stuff now <laughs> I mean, yes, uh, you got to imagine we we have unique advantages to this province and this city that we will continue to uphold for some time. And the cost of living piece, um, the access to the uh, there's a lot for us to sell uh, in this town and this city. And you've seen the campaigns that have been running in Ontario. It's like, you know, an engineer and a nurse walk into a into a room and, you know, they have a job in Alberta. That is real. I think that we're on this like (laughs) cycle. You know, I think somebody told me, I think it was like six weeks ago, I was at a conference. They're saying like within a fly block radius of downtown, some of the biggest energy companies potentially will be debt free by the middle of 2024. Like this is a generational thing that 
the amount of free cash flow, dividends, this just has this huge net effect to the city that I hope we don't waste. Um, and at the same time, we still have very unique advantages to every other jurisdiction in this country on access to talent, immigration policy, proper incentives, the right mix of people here, that like it's a winning formula that I don't think I would be anywhere else in the country to do. Um, and we have some of the best entrepreneurs that are coming back and doing really cool things. People are moving back to Calgary. So the community is all moving in the right direction. Uh, the amount of people coming back to take advantage of some of these opportunities excites me as well. Cause that was how many years ago was the brain drain and how many people are leaving Alberta and da, da, da. that's completely the opposite story right now. I, I guess if you, just, if you wait long enough, you back to your point about this, the patience of it all, it's going to go through its cycles, right? We're in very much a positive cycle right now. But, uh, and it's not just for the sake of it. There's a lot of real measurable uh, things that make it uh, very bullish on Calgary right now. <laughs> totally. Totally. Mark, thanks for your time. Thanks for the chat. Thanks for your candor. Thanks for willing to go wherever I wanted to go with the questions. Thanks for playing ball. I do participate. I do appreciate the participation in the event. Um, hey, if someone wants to reach out, you're on LinkedIn. Is it is it uh, builders? What what's your preferred? There's a million ways, but what do you prefer? Yeah, LinkedIn or mark.blackwellbuilders.vc. Oh, totally open source. Okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> reach out and he will be there on the other end. But hey, man, I really appreciate you. I appreciate the work you do in the city and the impact you have. And thanks for coming on. It was a great conversation. I really Sounds good. It. Thanks, Tyler.